Let me uh, say hello to other WNC campuses, and uh, on behalf of a bunch of any, anybody who's a leader, thank you for the, I don't know how many people, uh, yesterday you found out over 30 different schools on three different counties uh, and served uh, so many, many people, and uh, as we talk about that, serving people is not the gospel, but it does demonstrate the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus did on the cross for us. That was an act that he did, and what we do is when we serve other people, we do so understanding that Jesus served us in the gospel. And so what we do then is we serve other people as a demonstration of that gospel, right? So great job, uh, great, great job on that. Uh, here's kind of where we are. We're going to start today, 21 days of prayer, all right? 21 days of prayer. Last year was the first time we had done that uh, concerted consecutive days, and it, last year was one of the most uh, well-received, uh, most uh, prayer-answered uh, 21 days that, that I've ever been a part of, and just listening to all the different stories, reading all the different emails of what God did last year. We're anticipating uh, the same, if not more, this year. So 21 days of prayer, you might, what exactly is that? Here's, here's what we know. Here's what I know is true, whether you're in Franklin or whether you're in Arden, is that every single person here, if you think about it long enough, uh, everybody here has at least one significant burden in their life. You have at least one significant burden, that thing that you are consumed with or you worry about or even maybe even pray about, you have one significant burden and it runs the gamut of what it could be. It could be relational. Maybe your marriage is in trouble. Uh, maybe you've got a prodigal granddaughter or grandson or son. Uh, maybe you are estranged from somebody in your family and it's kind of gotten, you're used to that. It's been so long since you had any kind of normal family relations, you've almost given up on it being any different at all. Some of you, it's a financial uh, issue. Maybe it's a job issue. Uh, maybe the fact that you had a catastrophe in your family, a medical emergency, and it wiped out your, your savings. It wiped out your 401k, and you're like, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I'm three years away from retirement. I don't have time to play catch up. Uh, others of you, it, it's, not, it's not relational, it's not uh, financial. Others of you, it is a health-related issue. Uh, some of you, it is a habitual issue. Maybe there's a particular destructive habit that is in your life that very few other people know about, but you understand that this thing has whipped you for years and you've basically raised the white flag. You're not sure it can ever be any different at all. And we saw so many last year say, you know what, for 21 days, I'm gonna pray for the glory of God, for the freedom of my own soul, that that would be broken. And we saw, as the song said, strongholds broken. Uh, some of you, it's directional. Uh, you've got a big decision to make whether it be to buy that house or take that job or do whatever. And you're like, I need some direction. And we're going to actually uh, look at that in the last one of this 21 days of prayer. How do we get direction in prayer? But here's what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to, uh, hopefully in your seat, you had one of these little cards right here. doesn't look like much, but believe it or not, this card can be extremely significant, generation-changing, uh, family destiny-changing can be right in there. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do is this is the, this is the, this is the, biggest burden that you have. And you can do it. You can write it down now. You can do it during the course of the message. But what I'm going to ask you to do is this. I'm going to ask you to write down the biggest burden that you will commit to say for 21 days, I'm going to pray for this. You don't have to be super specific. You're going to know what it is, but write that down. I'm praying for my marriage. I'm praying for my, whatever. you write that down. I'm praying for a job. You write that down and then what you're doing, two things. You're committing to say for 21 days, by the grace of God, I'm gonna pray for this. I'm gonna pray intentionally. I'm gonna pray fervently. I'm gonna pray 
consistently, I'm gonna lift it. Very few Christians that I know of up until last year, listening to the polls, very few of us have actually prayed for 21 straight days about any one thing. 21 straight days, not taking a day off. I'm not saying you pray an hour a day, but you pray each day to say, God, I'm lifting this person up to you. I'm lifting this circumstance up to you for 21 days. So you're gonna write this down and then when you leave today, I'm gonna ask you to drop it in a container at each exit. I promise you they will be confidential. You, you, you won't see you won't see what you wrote down out on the social media. The reason we want you to do that is I know you're not gonna forget what it is. If it's the biggest thing, I can assure you that what I'm writing down, you don't have to remind me what that is. But secondly, our commitment to you is that the leadership over the next 21 days will at numerous times take those prayer requests, get on our face before God, and pray to God on your behalf. Now, we don't know exactly what that is. If all it says is, pray for my husband to be saved. That's all we know. You know what? God knows his name. God knows that situation. Our commitment to you is we're going to pray uh, for that. And we want to resource you just a little bit as well. And so here's the way we're going to resource you. There's a bunch of stuff in print, even for your, if you got kids today, they get a door hanger. All right. So it's like, uh, today I'm praying for, and it's laminated. And this one's like, uh, it's kind of sassy actually, but I guess it'll work. It says, Shh, I'm praying. So <laughs> if they put this on there, Make sure they're telling you the truth, all right? So it's not like, hey, I'm praying, hand, hand, I'm on the internet. So whatever it is, this will be, this will be what they get to join us in. This is a church-wide uh, emphasis, and so uh, that will be for, for them. I think for most of us, if you would do this, if you would uh, like to, if you would text the word prayer to 28282. Now here's what's gonna happen. Before I forget, you will not get an immediate response. A lot of you did this after Thursday when we did the Facebook Live. Uh, but the reason we wanted a lot of you to do it Thursday was so, because last year when I asked you to do that on the Sunday, it crashed the system because so many of you all texted in. But do that. You can do that right now. All right. You can actually take out your phone, text the word prayer to 28282, and here's what will happen. is Starting tomorrow, you will begin to get a daily devotional for 21 days. It'll be based on the characteristics of God and how you might pray knowing that the characteristics of God are this. Okay. So starting tomorrow morning, You'll get that, So, but you gotta text in. You can do it later on today if you'd like, but text the word prayer to 28282. And for the next 21 days, starting tomorrow, you will get a devotional to help you understand, okay, here's another truth that I can, here's another truth that I can, uh, can pray. Because bottom line is prayer, uh, prayer to some degree is super common. Uh, here's the way the text, actually the first sentence in the text, here's the way the text starts today. All right, it's just like, oh God, oh God. Now, in the big picture scheme of things, that is a very generic statement in the big picture. Uh, you see that that phrase is uttered who knows how many times in every corner of the world. You cannot go in, you can take a canoe and go down the Amazon River and you will not find any place, no matter how detached from civilization, that doesn't in some way worship, in some way pray. Obviously, all the different major religions, Muslims pray five times a day. An Orthodox Jew, they pray three times a day. Christians will pray in a variety of forms, formal prayers, book of prayers, all these different kinds of prayers. 30% of atheists actually admit they pray sometimes, all right? I don't believe in God, but you know, 30% of the time when I'm really in the foxhole, I'm going to pray. So 30% pray sometimes. Matter of fact, uh, the Gallup poll says that more Americans will pray. I think it's nine out of 10 Americans say that sometime during the course of the week, I will lift up a prayer. Now that might be a windshield prayer when you're driving down the road and you're like going to an interview and you're nervous. God help me. That might be all it is. 
But nine out of 10 Americans say they pray every single week. According to this poll, more Americans will pray this week than exercise, drive a car, have sex, or even go to work. But most of us struggle with prayer. I've been doing this pastor deal for a long time. And what I've noticed is if you want to get to a point of embarrassment in the life of a Christian, just ask them about their personal prayer life. Most, most, most Christians will get embarrassed. It's like, well, I do. But when you ask them, when's the last time you really got on your face before Almighty God for a consistent time where you're begging God and crying out to God for something? Uh, rarely, rarely. So there's a lot of mystery about it. As a matter of fact, Albert Einstein was at Princeton's Institute for Advanced Studies when he was asked by a graduate student, what is there left in the world for original dissertation research? And Einstein said, find out about prayer. Somebody has got to find out about prayer. And so uh, some of us, bottom line, we don't want to say it in church because it's not really polite, but we'll look at it next week primarily, is we're not sure exactly how effective prayer is. We're not sure. And don't look at me like that. Because if we absolutely were sure, we would pray more. I would not have to encourage or exhort or motivate anybody to pray. Because you've got that burden. If you knew what's on that card would be answered tomorrow, I don't have to preach this sermon. But what we don't understand is, and nobody again wants to admit this, but sometimes you pray and things happen. Sometimes you pray and they don't happen. Sometimes you say you'll pray and you forget to pray, but that thing you forgot to pray for happens anyway, and you're not sure what difference did it really make. That's next week. The second reason we oftentimes don't pray is what we're going to look at today, and that is we're not really sure how we're going to be received when we actually do close our eyes or hit our knees and actually pray. We don't know how we're going to be received. If we've had a good week and maybe read our Bible some and maybe sung a worship song or maybe helped the guy out on the street, we're like, maybe God will hear me. But bottom line is a lot of us, we're not sure what we're going to get and how we're going to be received when we actually hit our knees. We're kind of like uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, who she, she helps her husband kill and she becomes the queen of Scotland and the whole show is about it. She can't get the guilt and the shame off of her. It's like, I can't do it. I can't get this stuff off. And she sleepwalks. And as she's sleepwalking, she's just thinking this guilt, this conscience is like, you did it, you did it, you did it. She's like, I can't get the blood off of my hands. I don't think many people, hopefully none of us, have actually taken a life. But we all struggle with guilt. We all struggle at times with shame. If you're a healthy Christian, if you're a healthy Christian with a healthy conscience, you better understand what do I do not if I sin, but what do I do when I sin? And I want to just lay this out before you, that if you have a father who is all-powerful, all-knowing, loving, forgiving, his heart is inclined toward you, he seeks only good for you, he is merciful, then you are going to want to talk with. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a text to you today, and it is one of the more famous psalms in the Bible. As a matter of fact, we can only take about six or seven or eight verses of it. This is actually, this whole psalm could be a, we could spend four weeks in here. But the Bible says this, it says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. I'm not sure all that that means, but I know the word regard means if I just have no intention of getting rid of it, then it's gonna affect my prayer life. If I've got something I refuse to get right with God about, it is going to affect my prayer life. And so as we start off 21 days of prayer, before we look outward, let's look inward 
And my goal would be that you would be able to leave church today with a clean conscience, that you'd be able to walk out of fear with a gospel-cleansed, clean conscience. All right, so let's do this. Uh, You've been sitting there for a second. That's the longest introduction I've done in a long time. So uh, go ahead and stand to your feet, if you would, just while I read God's word, just in honoring God's word. I'm going to read Psalm 51, uh, about the first seven verses, and then I'm going to go to verse 10, and then you can sit, all right? I've highlighted a couple of things just to bring to your attention. Here's what it says. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Now, don't miss this. This is like the whole Open up the whole can is right there how he starts his prayer off. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He's taking ownership. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. How awesome that, but you leave church here in a few minutes and you're able to say, you know what? I have been cleansed from my iniquity. My transgression, my rebellion against the God who loves me, it is wiped away. It's blotted out. It's clean. That's a good day. Verse three, for I know my transgressions. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. I know that's like, what about, what about, we'll get to that. And done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Talking about God looking at his sin. A few more verses, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not talking about what his mother did. He's just talking about he didn't have to get trained to sin. Nobody had to teach him to sin. We come by it naturally. Verse six, behold, this is such a great verse that I learned this week. You delight in truth in the inward being, the inward being. That's the place that oftentimes we lock away from God. It's like, you can have all this stuff, but I'm keeping this right over here. That's what we're aiming for today. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. But here's what could happen. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And then verse 10 is our prayer. Create in me a clean heart. I want a clean heart. Heart is the seat of your emotions. It's your mind. It's your conscience. It's your will. It's your soul. God, give me a clean heart. What we just sang and renew a right, some of your translations say steadfast spirit, a spirit that wants to do right and glorify God, renew a right spirit within me. All right, thanks, go ahead and be seated if you would. Again, what we're looking at today is this is one of six, what they call penitential psalms that goes right in and it talks about sin and guilt and conscience. And let me just say again, I understand when we talk about guilt, there is a false guilt, but today we're talking about real guilt, true guilt. And oftentimes people are like, ignore the guilt and just get rid of the guilt. You should never feel guilty. I'm going to kind of go against the grain on that a little bit and say that true guilt is actually good. It's not, it's not enjoyable. It's not enjoyable. It is enlightening. Okay. It's, it doesn't have to be forever, uh, but it is for now. All right. It is painful for sure, but guilt, conviction, while painful, it is purposeful. And if we don't know how to deal with this on a regular basis, then what's going to happen is, is a roller coaster a Christian life. Guilt can be God's messenger showing you that something is not right. All right, so let me gonna give you the background. Most of, uh, most of the time, you don't know what's the background in a song. You've kind of got to guess, and sometimes you know it, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're kind of medium sure. We know what the background is on this song. 
You see the caption right above Psalm 51. It says, you know what? This is a Psalm of David after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet after he'd gone into Bathsheba. You're like, I don't understand what that is. Let me give you a uh, spark note version on what this Psalm was written in. This Psalm is actually a twin to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is written after a lot of reflection. Psalm 51, the scholars say, was written in the white hot heat of the moment when God convicted him. So here's kind of what's happened. Again, this is super quick. You can read about it yourself. But obviously, I mean, David was a, a very successful God-honoring king. He was, he, things were just, God was on this guy like you would not believe. But he started to make some compromises in his life. And one of those compromises was when it was time to go out and conquer some people, what happened was he's like, I'm going to stay back here. And he sent his men to do what God wanted him to lead them to do. And so while he's there, he's taking a nap. He's doing a little Sunday afternoon nap and he gets up and he walks on his roof and he looks out over the roofs and on a faraway roof, he sees a woman named Bathsheba and she's taking a bath. You're like, why is she taking a bath? We don't know. We don't know why she's taking a bath on a roof. She's taking a bath on the roof. And so as king, he calls one of his servants. He's like, who is that? Right over there. And there's times when you are being tempted that God throws you a safety net that you and I can grab hold onto and avoid falling to the temptation. And you see that in David's life, and the servant came to him and said, that woman right there, the woman that you're kind of a peeping Tom looking at as she takes a bath, that woman, okay, that is actually Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of your men, one of your soldiers. That's the wife of one of your soldiers who's fighting for you on a distant battlefield where you should be. He blows right through the stop sign, bring her to me. Bathsheba gets brought to him, they sleep together, lo and behold, she becomes pregnant, he's gotta figure out how to cover stuff up. His plan A, bring Uriah back from the battlefield. He's gonna bring him back from being on a faraway field. He's gonna be so happy to see his wife. They're gonna go in there, they're gonna sleep together, and then when, it's like, hey, she's pregnant by you, Uriah. That doesn't work. Uriah is so honorable, he's more honorable than David is. He comes back and it's like, I can't leave my men on the battlefield and then go experience the pleasures of my wife. I can't do that, so he refused to go in. Plan B, I'm gonna get him drunk. So what he did, he got Uriah drunk. And even a drunk Uriah is actually more honorable than a sober David, and he still didn't do it. And then finally, plan C was, well, if I can't make that happen, I'm gonna send him back to the battlefield holding the orders of putting him from the back line to the front line so that he's gonna get killed. And that's what happens. So in honor of his fallen soldier, he marries his wife Bathsheba. Time goes on. He sits on it for somewhere about a year. And then his preacher comes to him, a guy named Nathan. And Nathan said, David, can I have a little time with you? And he tells him this amazing story. Basically, he's like, David, David, help me out on this judgment. There's a guy and he's got like a hundred sheep. And then he comes up to it and he takes, there's a guy with one sheep and he kills the guy and steals his sheep. What should we do with him? And David's like, that guy ought to be killed. How terrible is that? And then... Nathan says, you are the man. Mic drop and walks out. You are the man. You're the guy with the hundred sheep that killed the person with one sheep. And then God convicted David right there and he broke down. And then he writes this Psalm shortly thereafter. So he's like, what does all that have to do with the story thousands of years ago with us? Let me say it again. What are you gonna do when you sin? 
What are you gonna do when you sin? What are you gonna do when the voice of conscience, the voice of conviction comes by and says, you did it, you stuck? Because all conscience is, when conscience starts to beat, what that is, is that's the alarm going off that you have gotten out of the moral boundaries that God has put there for your flourishing. It's like, you did it, you did it, you watched this, you said this, you acted this way. What are you gonna do when that happens, okay? And so really just two things today, very, very fundamental, but we gotta get this right if we're gonna have an effective 21 days of prayer. Again, everybody sins, but the Christ follower in conscience, if it's healthy, God will point it out to you. So here's, here, I'm give you two things. Number one, this is so key. I, I'd never, I've studied this Psalm too much from personal experience. I never take note, I've never taken note that he starts with God's character not his own character. I love that. He starts with who God is, not with what he had done. He started with God's character. Look what verse one says. It says, oh God, oh God, have mercy on me. Why should I have mercy on you? According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. I mean, what's his, what's his plan? His basis for his plea, his basis for his hope is the abundant mercy and steadfast love of the God he was talking to. His hope was not in his past resume and righteousness. It wasn't like, hey, I've been, all things considered, I've been a fairly good king. Would you not say, God? That was not it. Hey, you remember that Goliath thing? Remember how awesome I was in the field? Remember that? Remember that? Remember how much honor you got from that? There was none of that stuff at all. There was none like, hey, have you seen all these worship songs that I've written? I mean, a couple of them have gone to number one, God, so you, you gotta be happy that I've written these. There's none of that at all. He's just like, have mercy on me. Give me what I, don't give me what I deserve. I know what I deserve. Don't give that to me at all. Let me say it again. Repentance, a comeback, a clean conscience starts with going to who God actually is. It starts with you saying, what kind of God is it that I'm actually approaching? So here's, here's a nutshell, basically what we all can choose to do. You and I can choose to approach God one of three different ways. Number one, you can choose to approach him on basically what we've done. What we've done, this is what I've done. I'm a good person, I go to church, I volunteer, I help the homeless, and so would you do this. That is called religion and that is called self-righteousness. And if you looked in the Bible, you looked in the Gospels, when people came to Jesus and asked for mercy, he never turned them away. When they came to him in their own self-righteousness, he almost always turned them away or he turned it around and told a story that exposed their religion and self-righteousness. Don't come to God this way, what we've done. Second thing, and this is just a little bit, and I don't wanna be harsh here, but sometimes we come based on what's been done to us. Uh, the circumstances are bad. God, it's not fair. You owe me. You let this happen. If you don't do this, I'm not gonna follow you anymore. Now, loved ones, please hear me. Next week, we'll see. You can be amazingly honest with Almighty God. Next week, when we look at that Psalm, you're gonna see Psalm that I promise you has never been in your daily bread and it's not gonna be on a coffee cup anywhere in your house. You can be amazingly honest with God, okay? But at the same time, coming to God and just saying, you know what, God, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's not been fair, so would you do this? There is a time for lament, that's next week, or you do it this way. And here's the way you come to God. You come to God based on who God is. 
You based on who God is, based on the character, based on the mercy of God. If you're a Christ follower, you come to God based on the mercy you know that you've experienced at the cross of Christ, okay? Based on the position you have as an adopted son or daughter, you come to God and you say, God, I'm coming to you based on the mercy that I've seen, that I've experienced, that I know is true that you're a gracious God, you're a merciful God, you wanna help me, you're inclined toward me and my good, would you do this? Right. Again, everybody in the gospel is like mercy, 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 they're like absolutely, absolutely. But here's a, here's, a, here's a little verse in there that you need to underline in your Bible. Look at it, it says, I come to you based on your abundant mercy, and then look what it says, and it says, according to your steadfast love, all right? Some of you are like, I don't see that in my Bible. Let me give you a little clue. The word steadfast love is actually just one word in the Hebrew. And it's translated about five different ways. Some of it says covenant love, loyal love, steadfast love. Couple of paraphrases might say love, which is weak sauce. That's not really what it's saying at all. Steadfast love is a covenant word. It's a word based of the closest would be loyal love. It's the idea that I've made a, I've made a arrangement with you. And even if you break the arrangement, I'm not ever going to break the arrangement. It's saying, you know what, my covenant love with you, and if you're a Christ follower, you gotta understand the covenant God made with you is not based on how you perform this week, it's based on how Jesus performed 2,000 years ago when he perfectly lived the life we were supposed to live and then died in your place and then rose from the grave validating what he did, okay? That's what it's based off of. So when you see the word steadfast love here, it's, it is hard to translate into English because there's no, there's no real equivalent, all right? It's basically saying, I've been disloyal, but I'm throwing myself on the fact that you are loyal, that you are loyal. I mean, how does it start off here? It starts off, oh God, we should know this better. Fast forward 3,000 years, and how did Jesus teach us to pray? He didn't teach us to pray, oh God. He taught us to pray, our Father, our Father. You gotta get this, you gotta get this. The reason a lot of us don't pray and to be honest with you, the reason oftentimes that I will go through periods of barrenness in my prayer life is because I don't go back to the fact, I don't go back to this whole idea of, oh, my father wants to talk with me. He wants to talk with me. Now, some of you, when we talk about God the Father, some of you go back and you're like, there's a classic misunderstanding people have about the Bible. They think of the Old Testament God, the Father, is mean and grumpy and wants to kill everybody. That's kind of what you think of the, the Old Testament God, all right? Uh, and you think of Jesus as kind of like the son that went off to Emory University and got liberal and came back with all these ideas about grace. And so he's like, hey, Dad, come on, come on, come on. These people are really creative. They're really cool. They're really nice. So let's kind of give them another chance and let's try to rescue them. Like, nothing could be further than truth. Nothing could be further than truth. Think about all the stories Jesus told about the merciful, patient, loving father. Think about the prodigal son. That's Jesus telling a story about his heavenly father. And so what he says here is he says, he says, oh God, we can, say our, we can say our father that we have been made children, Romans chapter eight, we've been made children of God. We've been made children of God so we can cry out to our God, Abba, Father, Daddy. So you wanna melt prayer down to its main component? It is a child talking to his or her dad. That's really what it is. That's my dad and that's my dad and he wants to talk to me. I put down one statement, I wanna read this a couple of times because I thought this is the crux of the whole issue. A dynamic prayer life requires a foundational conviction that God is my Father and he is totally for me, he is for my good, and I do not have to persuade him to care about me. 
Can you say that? Do you understand that? Do you feel that? Let me say it again. A dynamic prayer life requires a foundational conviction that God is my father. He is totally for me, for my good, and I do not have to persuade him to care at all. J.I. Packer, great theologian, here's the way he put it. I've read this a few times, but he said, if you really want to find out how much someone understands Christianity, find out how much they understand and make of the fatherhood of Almighty God. thought that is so true. Like, why does that have to do with prayer? Here's why it does. If, uh, if God is just your boss, as a matter of fact, let me just say this. The reason a lot of us don't have any emotion in prayer, the reason a lot of you don't have any emotion in your Christian life at all, the reason it's been decades since tears came out of your eye, whether tears of sadness or tears of joy, is because you don't understand this. It's because you don't understand this at all. Why is that? Because if God is your boss, even if he is a good boss, he's not unconditionally committed to me. Understand that? You might have a great boss, but he's not unconditionally committed to you. Got a great employer, but he's not unconditionally committed to you. If you act up, he might give you a warning. She might give you two warnings, but bottom line, eventually you're gonna be fired and they will move on to somebody else. But if you mess up and you know God is your father, you know what? The father moves closer to you when you mess up. Those of you that have had rebellious kids or have prodigals, okay? You don't disown them. You actually move closer toward them when they are in their sin, when they mess up. Why? Because you're not their employer. You're not their boss. You are their dad. You are their parent. You love them. Now, here's where it uh, kind of comes through uh, with us is uh, what God's looking for is for us not just to try to not sin. I just, I'm trying to get away from that. It's that I don't want to sin. I don't want to sin. Why? Because I don't want to break my father's heart. You don't feel that way about your boss, right? You might be disappointed and you might not like the consequences, but bottom line, if I mess up toward my boss, I'm sad. I might be, again, sad about the repercussions, but it doesn't grieve me because he's my boss. But if I hurt my dad, if I break my dad's heart, remember how some of you, if you had a good dad, one of the things that would get you right in the heart would be, you know what? It disappoints me, disappoints me. That's like 50 times worse than a spanking. It's like, just spank me, okay? Don't say that I disappointed you. Why? Because you broke your father's heart. And so here's what I'd ask you to do. Ask yourself, when you sin, when you sin, where do you run? That shows your understanding of the gospel. When you sin, where do you run? I love the little, it's a Christian meme by now, but it's probably the best Christian meme out there. Religion says, I messed up, my dad is gonna kill me. I messed up, my dad's gonna kill me, all right? The gospel says, I messed up, I need to call my dad. Which one do you do? When you mess up, is it, oh, my dad's gonna kill me, I'm gonna give him time to cool off? Or is it like, man, I messed up, I gotta call my dad? Because that leads into what he goes into, and that is this. We talk about, I've, I've used this phrase a hundred times, I don't think I've ever used it in a sermon, point. You wanna get a clean conscience? You wanna be able to walk out of church, you know what, I got a clean conscience, then what do you do? You run to God in repentance, why? Because you know he's a father who loves you and he's leaning into you and Christ has made a way for you to come before him with confidence to a throne of grace. That's why you run to him or you can be religious and you can run from God in your shame. You I can't believe what I did and God, you know, it's like it really shocked God that you did whatever it is you did. I, mean, I love the fact it's like my sin was ever before me. My sin was ever before me. Uh, quick confession, I wasn't gonna use this one, but it just seems like a good place to do it now, is uh, when I was like eight, 
uh, we were visiting my uncle and aunt up in, uh, they lived in Salem, Roanoke area. That's probably, that's probably eight or nine, but my cousin, Glenn, if you're watching online, Glenn, I'm about to rat us out. Here's basically what we did is, uh, again, eight or nine, and this, this seems pretty innocent compared to today, but it was a big deal back then, or it seemed like it. All right, all my, par- my parents smoked and uh, smoked those Marlboro 100s, not that easy little filter. So we're talking about Marlboro 100s, all right? Serious cigarettes, all right? So here's what we did. We're like, hey, that looks cool. We're going to go do that. So Glenn and I, we stole some cigarettes out of, I don't know if it was the aunt or the uncle or the, my parents, but we stole these Marlboro 100s and we went down the hill into the woods. Man, we thought we were so careful. Man, nobody, nobody's going to see this. So we down there, man, we were smoking that. We might smoke too. And we got the lightheaded nicotine rush. As an eight-year-old, that's a crazy thing. And so we thought all that stuff happened. And then we traipse up the hill thinking we are just scot-free. We walk in and Aunt Vivian immediately was like, you guys have been smoking. We're like, how? She has eyes in the hills. How did that happen? It finally dawned on me like when I was 20 or something. It's like she smelled it on us. She smelled, we smelled like a chimney. That's why she knew. I was like, a, I was stunned. I can't have my little And so all that being said, do you understand everything we do, every sin is right, it is open before Almighty God. And do you understand, what are you, what, what are you more fearful of? If somebody were able to show up on the screen the last 30 days of all your sin, probably wouldn't show up to church if that was gonna happen. That would make us very uncomfortable. But the truth is, God sees it all. And oftentimes we can just traipse along like he didn't see a thing and he saw everything. And so what do we do? The good news is we can run to him in repentance and not from him in shame. So repentance gets a bad words nowadays. We think of the crazy guy down at the drum circle saying the end is near, repent. We, we think that that's just crazy. Repentance is the theme of the Bible. It is the theme of the Bible. All right. Now, the message of the Bible is the fact that you can repent and turn because of the grace that Jesus offers because of his sacrificial death. But the theme that you see over and over and over again is repent, repent, repent. First sermon out of Jesus' mouth, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. It's repent. Okay, so here's what repentance is. It's a willingness to feel remorse for what one has done to fail to live out God's standards. I feel conviction over the fact I've not only offended a holy God, but I've hurt a loving father. Verse one, transgressions, I've taken what is not mine. Think about this for a second. Think about David. When David said, I have transgressed, and that means I've taken what is not mine. And then verse two, he says iniquity, which means it's like my soul is corrupted. It means that sin had affected David's whole being. David's transgression showed that that he had gone from a man who was loving of his people and did what was best for his people as king, and he had become the kind of person now to cover his own sin, he would kill his own people. And it's grieving him that not just what he did, but he'd become the kind of person that would do what he did. He's like, this is what I've become. I'm dealing with this at a heart level. I didn't just commit adultery. I've become the kind of person that commits adultery. And so he owns it. My sin, my transgression, I did evil. And so let me do a quick distinction here. You gotta understand when God brings that, when he sends a Nathan into your life, If it's general, like you're a sinner estranged from a holy God, that's the gospel inviting you to embrace Christ by faith. Once you cross that line and become a Christ follower, it changes in the purpose, the purpose now, and actually the way he does it before it could be real general. Once you're a Christ follower, it becomes very specific, which is called biblical conviction. 
It's very specific. It's not general. It's very specific. You did this. You talked to your wife. You watched this. You cheated here. You did this. Very specific. Why? Because he's not doing it to destroy you. He's doing this to deliver you. You got to understand that. It's a loving God trying to hone in on that area that is eventually going to kill me. I'll give you an example real quickly. Five, six years ago, I got diagnosed with cancer. And one of the things they did, we looked at all these different options. One of the options was radiation. And if you had had this thing, I mean, if I had this thing 20 years ago, the radiation, all it would have done is blast my insides. So what are they just blast it? And all this other stuff would have been hurt. But now they had this deal called IMRT, IMRT. In a nutshell, what that thing is, is this massive machine that goes around me and I laid on a table for 30, I think it's 38 days. And what they did is it was basically these tiny little lasers that would go in, tiny little beams of radiation that would rotate around me for the purpose of, we don't want to destroy everything in there. We just want to kill the cancer that's there. That's what conviction is for the Christian. I'm trying to hone in on something so that it doesn't grow and metastasize and eventually kill you. So here's the the way we can handle this, three or four ways. Uh, One way we can deny it. I mean, that's pretty classic. It's it's not wrong. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. If you're a Christ follower, your standard is what does God say? That's God's plan for your flourishing, okay? I just deny it. I'm not going to say it. Sometimes when we deny it, we throw ourselves even further into it to prove that it's not actually sin, but deny it. Here's one. We can deflect it. Deflect it. Deflect it is, uh, I'm going to blame shift. I'm going to shift the blame to somebody else, okay? Because I don't really want it coming on me right now. All right, if I deflect it, it, it's what Adam did in the garden. It's what Adam did in the garden when God confronted him. It's like, the woman you gave me, she made me do it. All right, she made me do it. It's the woman's fault directly and indirectly. It's your fault because you gave her to me. But it's not my fault. It's not my fault at all. What do we do? We do things like... Uh, Well, if I hadn't been in this situation, uh, I've been treated poorly and that justifies my bad actions. Or uh, my wife is not responsive to me, so that justifies my affair that I have. Or it's not really that bad, especially compared to other people. Or the classic one is uh, somebody, a loving brother, or maybe your spouse points out something in your life that is clearly, clearly sin, and you don't want to deal with it. And so what do you do? What's the classic thing you do? Well, let's, let's, let's talk about your sin. All right. All right. Before we talk about me, let's talk about, we flip it around and you're going to bring that on me. I'm going to bring it right back on you. We just deflect it. I don't want to deal with it. Here's another one, man. This is this. We live in a perfect age for this one. Perfect cultural moment to be able to distract from our sin distract from our sins. Like, you know what? I'm just going to get, I'm not going to deal with it. I just don't want to deal with it. I'm just going to kind of push it away. Uh, uh, I'm not going to tell you which one it was, but we have two boys. And when they were young, one was a thumb sucker and one was a pacifier guy. Okay. One was a thumb sucker and one was a passive guy. Now this was before somebody invented the genius little rope that actually kept the pacifier from falling to the floor. But before that time, here's what would happen. You'd be in the car and they'd be in the back seat and, um, you know, the pacifier son, you know, if that passy came out, it would dribble down and inevitably it would go somewhere. Lord knows where it went. We don't know. It hadn't been found to this day. It would go under the seat. It would go wherever. 
the pacifier kid could endanger the lives of everybody in the car if you're trying to find where the passy went, all right? That's why we like the thumb. We like the thumb sucker. Why? Because the thumb's not going to fall off. It's just going to stay. Put your thumb back in your mouth. But the pacifier did. So we did something. And don't judge me on this, but when the passy would fall out, and if we, if I, especially if I was riding solo and I couldn't find it, and I'm reaching but can't find it, I never did stop the car and get the pacifier. And that boy is screaming, 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 passy, passy. I mean, that decibel level is rising. Judge me if you want to. What I would do is I'd turn the music up. Okay, because I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. He likes music. He likes music, so we're going to give him music. And I would turn it up so loud that I couldn't hear him screaming, all right? Because I'm like, oh, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. Now, we live in the perfect age to do that now, don't we? I don't want to think about my sin, so I'm just going to get super busy and turn the volume up so I don't have to deal with the conscience that is continually talking to me. I mean, we live in an amazing time. We can actually watch a movie on our phone while we're Twittering about the movie we're watching on our phone, while we're talking to the friend about the movie we're watching on the phone by the phone. I mean, we can do that and stay so preoccupied. But what we eventually find is that guilt finds a way. Shame finds a way. A healthy conscience finds a way. Now, sometimes, and by the way, if you're like, I never get convicted at all, that's not great at all. Okay. Either number one, either number one, you're not one of his sons or daughters, or, or your conscience is what the Bible calls seared or calloused. It means there's been an area in your life that you've pushed God away from so many times, it's very difficult to hear the voice of God any longer about that area. And so that is a source of, that's a source of, uh, destruction. It's a source of bondage and loved ones. Hear me on this. If you don't let God deal with it, at some point, it's going to be a source of shame. And so what God would have for us to do is this, is he actually doesn't just want us to stop it. He wants us to despise it. He wants us to hate the sin more than we just hate the consequences. The difference in repentance and remorse, remorse is I hate that I got caught and that it cost me something. Repentance is I hate the fact that I injured and I hurt the heart of God who loves me. I'm grieved over not just what I've done, but the reason that my heart is so jacked up that I would actually do that kind of thing. Repentance is soul grief that I can't believe that I did that. Listen to it. verse three and four says, my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's been sitting on this. He sat on it for a year before Nathan came and confronted him. You're like, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? Killed that guy. What about the people? Now, real quick note before we move on. Real repentance, real repentance does understand that our sin has collateral damage. And real repentance and a real clean conscience, you do have to deal with the people who are injured because of your choices. You do. You have to. That's not what this text is about, but just understand, look at Zacchaeus as an example. I stole from people I got to go restore. But what you look at here is you look at the fact that, you know what, all my sin was ultimately, ultimately against God. I'm not satisfied with what God has given, so I go outside of his boundaries. I don't like the fact the wife he gave me, so I'm going to go have an affair. I don't like the job he gave me, so I'm going to go cut the corners. I don't like the circumstances he gave me, so I'm just going to ignore that he even exists. That is, that is, that's a hard heart. And so what do we want to do? We want to do this. Verse 6, you delight in truth in the inward being. What's the inward being? 
The inward being is that place you've locked away from God. For some of you, it's bitterness. Somebody hurt you and they justifiably, I mean, they, they hurt you. Nobody's trying to lessen that. But what happens is they hurt you. You've never dealt with it. So you become a bitter person. That bitterness is spilling over into other relationships. And today's the day that God wants to set you free from that. God, you're a gracious God. You've been forgiving to me. So because of your forgiveness to me, I'm going to forgive these people who owe me. If I never hear from them again, God, I'm releasing them into you. Some of you, it's a place of greed. Bottom line, it's, a, it's just a place of greed. God's converted your heart. God's converted your soul. He's never converted your wallet because you're the least generous. You're less generous than lost people that you work with. You haven't actually helped anybody in Jesus' name in years. Or if you do, it's a tip. And God's like, okay, you're a greedy person. You're a greedy person. You're like, how do you talk to me that way? Just saying, I, look at your spreadsheet. When's the last, what would that say your priorities are? How about, uh, there's areas of secret sin at church today. There's areas of immorality. Maybe flirting at work. Maybe floating around on websites every time when the family goes to bed. And you feel shame and you feel guilt. And the question is, are you going to bring that shame to God and let Jesus cleanse it and give you victory over that? Or are you just going to hold on to it and live a life of defeat the rest of your years? So here's, uh, here's kind of what I'm asking you to do. I'm trying to say that you need to, make, you need to invite God and make yourself at home. You're like, when it says inward part, that's what it means. Now, here's the deal. Um, make yourself at home. If you ever come to my house and I say make yourself at home, that's not really what I mean, all right? It's not really what I mean, all right? It's not. I, mean, I got a connect group on Tuesday nights at our house. You know what? I'm, I always tell them, make yourself at home. I don't really mean that, all right? Not really, really mean that because you know what? If it's my home, there is no place off limits. If it's my home, I'll get in the desk drawer. I'll look at the tax returns, Okay. If it's my home, I'll look at the search history. If it's my home, I will take my socks off and I will walk around in gym shorts. If it's my home, it's like everything is open. So when you say make yourself at home, realize, God, I want you to make yourself at home in every single area of my life. I want you to make yourself at home in my marriage life. I want you to make yourself at home in my money life. I want you to make yourself at home in my moral life. I want you to make yourself at home in my life. So you focus on the behavior. God says, I want your heart. I want your heart. And what's the, what's the promise? Verse seven, last verse. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Listen to me. God's bent towards you is good. God wants flourishing in our lives. God wants the next 21 days for you to be the most satisfying, rewarding, victorious, freedom-giving, life-changing 21 days you've ever had. He wants that. You need to be able to say, God, I want you to search the inward parts. What are the areas that I've withheld from you? And I want to make those right today. I want the voice of conscience to lead me to the act of the gospel so that it gives me the freedom to say, God, anywhere you want to go, you go. You go, you give me that. And you're like, I just can't, I've done it, I can't forgive myself, I can't, I know I'm forgiven, I just don't feel forgiven, I can't forgive myself. Listen, when you say that, you're saying that your voice, your opinion of your sin is more valuable, it carries more weight than what God says about your sin, than what God says about your sin, all right? You can't outsend the cross, listen to me, you can't outsend the cross, but you certainly have to go to the cross and cling to the cross to experience the forgiveness and all the stuff he says the rest of the verses. The rest of the verses, things, things like, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Do this and I will testify to other people. Do this and I will help your city grow. 
do this and this is what will happen. So here's, here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Before we, uh, before we uh, jump into these 21 days, again, it starts tomorrow. I want you, on the basis of the character of God and his mercy that was shown in the gospel, I want you to think about the one thing that God convicted you of during the course of this message. And here in a second, you're gonna bow your heads and I want you to do one thing. Go to him based on his character and then run to him in repentance. Repentance is not a one-time thing. All of the Christian life is just, it's repentance. It's over and over. God shows you, you repent, you follow on the gospel and you advance. That's the, again, Luther said, the Christian life is all about starting over again. It's about beginning again. That's what it is. Today, this morning is a chance. I can begin again. I can walk out of here with a clean conscience. You might have some actions you need to do to make a phone call, maybe restore some money you took, maybe an apology. But right now, you can have a clean conscience before Almighty God if you go, based on your mercy, I'm asking you for mercy, and I'm asking you what verse 10, give me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then you can segue to say, okay, this is the deal. This is what I'm praying for. Maybe this prayer is for you, that you would break the habit. Again, you can be as honest as you want to, Heads bowed and eyes closed.